Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. That's what the prophets do. The prophets are not fortune tellers. 
trying to jar people out of their reality, oftentimes we use apocalyptic language. We use language that's jarring, and that was the language they would use of the day. That's why Jesus uh, oftentimes would use parables. That's why John the Revelator, when he wrote Revelation, there's a lot of stuff he thought that's really jarring. Why? Because he was writing in that vein, that apocalyptic prophetic vein. Doesn't mean he's telling you that there's going to be things exactly like that in future times, but he's saying things that are going to be jarring to you. And so the idea is, if we are comfortable, which I, I have to be honest, if you're sitting here in this church today, you're one of the comfortable. Because if we are the comfortable ones that need to be afflicted, what is the job of us prophetically? Do I have to have an organ left? That's just good stuff. So what we find in this second week of Advent is we're presented with one of the most unique characters in the New Testament. John the Baptist. We know John is there, and most of us know a few things about him. However, it's John the Baptist or Elijah. Most of us wouldn't dare spend any time with him, let alone invite him to church. The role of John the Baptist is absolutely necessary within the ministry of Jesus, and while he and Jesus' ministries differ from one another, John, uh, excuse me, Jesus seems to build on John the Baptist message is the message of what? Repent or the, so what part of John the Baptist's message did Jesus always talk about? He built upon it with what again? Healing. That's like all Jesus talked about. Literally all Jesus talked about. Everywhere. He, it's funny to me because I, I was talking to a pastor and he said, you ever think of John Thayer? And I said, why is that? And he said, so we have to come up with of healing, he said, so he had one. <laughs> you know, it's kind of true. I mean, he, he literally just had one message, the kingdom of God. And so he piggybacks on what John the Baptist is doing. And I know this might surprise you, but John the Baptist is being lifted here. He subverts the establishment within the time of Jesus. You see, both sides of John's picture are from the priestly lineage. You find it on his father's side and his mother's side. He is from royal priestly lineage. This is really rare. It's not rare to have one side or the other. You know, I mean, that's like somewhat rare too. But to have both of them from this priestly, and I'm going to use a specific term, the priestly class. So there was a very strong classism 
but there was a priestly class. The priestly class was was privileged in every regard. The priest, priestly class was wealthier. The priestly class was um, was cared for, was regarded, was distinguished. And so John came from the priestly class. It would have been, I told Mike yesterday, it would have been like John being the son of the Pope, basically. Big deal. And what John the Baptist did that was so interesting to me is John the Baptist, from his father and mother both being of the priestly class, John the Baptist decides to absolutely subvert the entire thing and to leave that class system to go into the wilderness to eat locusts and honey wearing camel's hair not following in the privileged footsteps of his parents. I mean, you see this oftentimes. It's why um, uh, oftentimes when there are uh, folks in the political class, you see that it becomes generational. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Or military, you oftentimes see that. But imagine if you had the uh, uh, the son of a um, uh, an ongoing the, the let's see the the Bushes people that had had generations in politics, okay, who then decided that they, rather than uh, George W. Bush's son following his in his father's footsteps, he was somebody who was a community organizer who was always critiquing what our, pol- our politics or our government were doing. It would be not only something that would be shocking, but it would kind of be a slap on the parents. Don't kids do that? So what John the Baptist did, as we consider this text, is very powerful within the context of Advent. You see, a long tradition of Christian art depicts John the Baptist standing waist-deep in the clear waters of the Jordan, Jordan, pouring waters over the heads of the converts and perhaps immersing them in the clear waters of the Jordan. While many crowds of onlookers stood along the banks, or maybe there was a line of people, then you, you might be imagining John the Baptist standing in the middle of the Jordan. There's people that, I don't know why they all have on white robes, which is somewhat awkward if you're getting ready to get dunked in some water. But we just assume that everybody's got on their white robes and they're, uh, they're you know, they're, I, I don't know why we pick like stand in line cleaning to go get baptized in, but that's what everybody's just pictured it and they're standing in line and waiting, ready to get dunked in, right? That's what we imagine John the Baptist doing. That's been the iconography of John the Baptist. But I would like to suggest to you that there's something, in fact, there's much, much more going on here. As interesting as it might be, no scene can be found from the Gospels or Jewish historical writings regarding how John the Baptist baptized. So I, I, I need to be clear, and we'll talk about this more later. I believe wholeheartedly, in fact, it is one of the central tenets of our faith um, for baptism, and I believe in baptism. But what we, we do oftentimes do is we, we cling to a scene and we take our reality now and we look back at those moments and say, so we imagine a church service kind of like this. We imagine a baptism service is either out by a lake, a pond, or maybe a hillstock, as we generally hear. And 
that somebody is doing dumb things saying in the name of the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. But we have no clear picture of what John's baptism is actually looking like. It's believed that John the Baptist taught people as they went south and east of Jerusalem, which is the desert. When you travel through this area, it's easy to see why you would locate the Gehenna's because it is clearly out of necessity. There's nothing else there. It is a desert. For people to leave their homes and listen to him preach and be baptized would have involved a significant commitment on their part. It would have been perilous and difficult journey, not simply a task of going across town. People seeking this ritual would have had to invest a lot of their time to even get there. The thing that's unique about this is this location is likely Bethsaida. The thing that's unique about this location is you actually had to um, travel through the desert to get there. Sometimes of the year, it wouldn't actually even be accessible. You couldn't get there. It would be impossible. So the idea that, that John the Baptist is just on the other side of town standing by the Jordan and that there's a line of people getting ready to get dunked is very much something that we've imported into the church. even when accompanied by repentance. And John baptism has been prom- uh, prompted Jewish scholars to conclude that no real parallel, this is fascinating to me, no real parallel to John's baptism has ever been discovered in contemporary Jewish practice. Let me say that in a non-scholarly way. What Jewish scholars are saying is there's nothing about John's baptism that was in any way similar or in contemporary similar to what the Jewish baptism was. Nothing. It was actually the opposite in every regard. Our central idea of John submerging masses of people in the Jordan River for the purpose of cleansing and remission of sins breaks almost every single commandment we can find in Jewish law about what we're supposed to do in baptism. start leaning in the right direction. It breaks all the rules. You see, the Bible repeatedly, in fact, I found 12 instances in the Old Testament where the Bible actually tells you that it is it is not only wrong, but it's unlawful to baptize, baptize somebody in muddy water. The, the, if, you, if you're to look at the Jordan now, uh, it's not that not that uh, different from how it would have looked then. It literally looks like a sewage runoff. You want to know why it looks like a sewage runoff? Because it is a sewage runoff. Right? This is foul, dirty water. It's what they had. And so they were specifically advised here not to baptize people in that, in the Jordan. Second thing is that they were only to baptize people in water that had been deemed holy by the priests. So what would happen at the time if you were a Jew, or I assume thousands of years by this point have gone, is the way you would, you the point of baptism was for the cleansing of not necessarily what we would call sins, because that's what they had to atone against after that ritual, but it was for being made clean. 
so there was all kinds of things that you, if you ever want to have life reading, it's just invigorating. Just sit down with the book of Leviticus. It's uh, interesting to see all of the different rites of purification that they had. But they had all of this purity code. So if you touched something that you weren't supposed to touch, you had to bathe yourself in a certain pool. The pool had to be a mikveh that had been deemed holy by the priest with water that had been deemed holy by the priest. And you still were not allowed to interact with anybody for the next 48 hours. Because you were still in the same family you've been in all week. So John the Baptist absolutely had nothing in common with the common Jewish rites that his family were the purveyors of in Jewish purification. So he literally, it's like John the Baptist decides that um, I'm just going to change my rules. And what John the Baptist did that was so unique is John the Baptist would go out and you can find specifically where he would take uh, the, this Jordan and people would pass through the Jordan River. Most Jewish scholarship, uh, scholarship excuse me, indicates that John wasn't attempting to model Jewish purity codes. The Jordan River was dirty and nearly impossible to get to. So it's likely believed that something different was happening. So more than likely, the first thing about John the Baptist that we don't recognize is that John the Baptist... Um, from a young age, it is very likely, went to live in a monastic community in the desert. So uh, much like, remember the story of Samuel when Samuel was born, how his mother dedicated him to live in the temple and was uh, raised there by Eli, not that Eli, but a different one, uh, and was raised there by Eli the high priest. Remember that story? That would happen regularly. And so John the Baptist was a miracle baby. Is everybody cool with that? Everybody agrees, right? His parents are really old. Zacharias goes to the goes to uh, the temple because he's on duty. Uh, the angel appears and says he's going to have a child. So John, in much like Samuel, John the Baptist was then uh, more than likely dedicated to a monastic community called the Essenes. So there were different groups of religious people in Israel at that time. The Essenes were a, a group of people who, much like monks or um, monastic communities now we would see, they separate themselves entirely from society and devote themselves completely to prayer and study of the Torah. They lived a life of absolute purity, uh, including um, um, abstinence. Uh, they didn't have children. They didn't have uh, spouses give themselves in marriage. They dedicated their life to that. And it's interesting because the Essenes um, play a big part in, in our ability to study Scripture and things that we've learned about the history of Israel because it's the Essenes that wrote these things down that we found many thousands of years later called the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were found out in the middle of the desert uh, near to an area that was believed to be an ascetic community or a community of the Essenes. So John the Baptist, it would make a lot of sense that after the keeping in mind, remember how ticked off everybody was around Zechariah when he said his name would be John, not Zechariah? Remember that whole thing where Zechariah begins to be able to speak again? His tongue is loosed. This doesn't just mean he can wiggle it back and forth. Um, but his tongue is loosed and he can speak, and he says his name will be John. More than likely at that time after John was born, it gave impetus to ascetic communities that rose in Israel. 
noted something interesting. So something happened in John, and I don't know why. I, this is complete conjecture, and I'll tell you that. But somehow John saw himself as in the, in the lineage or in the vein of the prophet Isaiah. There was something about Isaiah that John the Baptist was inspired by, which is why John the Baptist uh, quotes Isaiah in that passage that we just read this morning in, in Matthew where he says, in the way of uh, Isaiah, there will be one that will come and saying, prepare you the way of the Lord. So he's quoting Isaiah. He sees himself in that vein. The thing that Isaiah did that was more interesting than maybe anything else is Isaiah was the, the first prophet that, we, that I know of anyway in the Old Testament that says salvation is not just for the Jewish people. Isaiah is the one that says this is going to be into all people. So John the Baptist is in this ascetic community. The thing that's about to get changed, much like many monastic communities, purity is very important, and they believed that the only ones that could really embrace the gospel message, which it wasn't the gospel at that time, but, but Judaism in that form and serve Yahweh were the Jews. John the Baptist gets this idea, probably from Isaiah, that, that serving God is for all people. And guess what happens? How, does, how do you think that goes over? So more than likely, John the Baptist gets the boot. This is why when we find John in the New Testament, he's the voice of crying in the wilderness. Because the community in, that, in the wilderness that he was raised in no longer could allow him to be there because John is preaching this gospel to the Romans. John is preaching this gospel to the Samaritans. In fact, there's a lot of scholarship that, scholarship that suggests that John regularly would go into Samaria and baptize people. That doesn't go over well. These are heathens. But John is saying, nope, let's be baptized and embrace the kingdom of God. So, it's clear that John is doing something at the Jordan, but if he's not offering a version of Jewish purification, if he's not saying that this is how your sins are made clean, then what is John doing? I think it would be important to recognize the, the significance of the Jordan River to the Jewish people. You see, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the solemn crossing of the Jordan marked Israel's formal act of coming into the Promised Land. Remember what the Jordan would have meant to them. It was the boundary line of demarcation that separated Egypt and wilderness from Israel and promised land. And so what they did before they could come into the promised land, remember that the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and as soon as they went to step their foot onto the Jordan, what happened? It parted, and they stepped across on dry land. They led Israel in following the Ark of the Covenant through the Jordan on dry land. You find that with uh, Elijah and Elisha. Remember the Elijah and Elisha transfer where the mantle was given? And remember what happened, that Elijah's walking through and takes his mantle and does what to the Jordan? Strikes the Jordan River, it parts, and they walk across it. You see how the Jordan represents this deep prophetic idea of, of being God's people and, in fact, the generational blessing of God's expansive, inclusive salvation. There's the word. So, 
What's interesting to me is that uh, when you read the account that uh, Joshua gives of when they came into Israel, so they've come out of Egypt and slavery. They've wandered in the wilderness, and now they're coming into this place where God is trying to establish a beloved community. God is trying to establish a people who are human beings, not human doings. God is trying to establish a caring, kind, and good society of people. And what Joshua says upon carrying the the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan, Joshua says to them, all Israel, hear me today. Today, the shame of of Egypt has been rolled off of you. So as they come across the Jordan, what is it that they're believing prophetically has been wiped away? What word? Shame. Now, I I don't want to go too far down this path, but I think it, it at least serves noting that when you have been a slave to something, oftentimes after your liberation, you still carry the shame of that thing. You still identify with it as that thing or that thing to such a degree that it's not what you did, it is who you are. What God was trying to do, keeping in mind the first definition we have of God in the Old Testament is the God who sees and hears the oppressed. So what God is trying to do is he's saying, I'm bringing you into this place and I want this Jordan River to be a line of demarcation that says your past is gone. Your shame of what you've experienced is not something you're bringing with you. Your identity as free people is who you are. And so the idea of this Jordan was very interesting because the Jordan symbolized the washing, but not a ceremonial ceremonial excuse me, remission of sins, but the Jordan separated and represented the crossing place of slavery into thriving and flourishing as human beings, not human doings. I would like to suggest to you that John's baptism was doing the same thing. You see, John was not trying to recreate the Jewish mikvah. John was not trying to say, if you have touched an unclean person or an unclean thing that if you sprinkle this upon you. Remember we talked before that they had these mikvahs everywhere, all through the city, so that if you even thought you brushed against someone who was unclean, a leper, a poor person, a prostitute, you would then find the closest pure water and you would dip your hands in it and sprinkle it over yourself and move on knowing you've been made clean again. John wasn't trying to do that. What John was doing is he was saying, you're already clean. 
John was trying to tell them that it's it is a mental uh, mental is a healthy use of the word um, a psychological sense of uncleanness and that is producing a shame identity and he was trying to speak to this idea that you're more than your biggest mistakes you're more than your failures you're more than your slavery you're more than your bondage you're more than your shortcomings john was trying to create an idea that there was this thing that's that's deep within them and the word the, the theological word is ontological ontological means the substance of who you are it's like your dna so the uh, we would say that god's ontological nature is love because john first john 3 says what god is god is love so ontolo- that love is not what god does simply love is who god is so you are not good because you've done good things good is not what you do good is what who you are because that's your ontological nature so what john is trying to remind them of is that rather john in some amazing way was not calling people out into into the desert to come out of jerusalem to come out into the wilderness so they could have just another baptism that they could have had with a mikveh in jerusalem He wasn't trying to replicate that. He was trying to subvert the whole thing because the problem with the Jewish purity system, just like any other purity code, is it creates dualistic thinking that you have to have people who are clean and people who are, you have to have people who are holy and people who are, that's just the way it works. John is trying to say, no, 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 it's not about that. It's not about purity codes. It's about the ontological nature of who you are. And what John was doing is he was doing this through a phrase that we're not familiar with probably in our culture, although we'll know what it means. We know the word. We don't do this anymore, but every ancient culture did this. Pilgrimage journeys. Or what oftentimes is called rite of passage. Has anybody ever heard of rite of passage? So every ancient culture had rite of passage where you would go on some journey. Sometimes it would be days out in the in the wilderness uh, the native americans the indigenous people here um in uh, uh in native in north america what we now call north america um utilized rite of passage all the time it was very common we don't do it anymore do we i, I would maybe suggest you get away from that topic so what you find is that john's organizing was a symbolic exodus from Jerusalem and Judea that was what we would call a rite of passage. That's why Jerusalem was, uh, excuse me, uh, the Jordan River was hard to get to. You had to climb and traverse a very difficult way through the desert to get to this place because the whole point was a rite of passage. John was maybe, maybe, not just organizing a baptismal service where we all see Mary in the water and people line up in their linen white robes to get dunked. But John 
is organizing time of a rite of passage to reconnect people with their identity, which is If you would hold on to anything else that our Christian faith says, Christian faith is about letting go. Okay? Surrender, faith, it's all about letting go. Instead, we have made it to be about taking in, attaining, performing, winning, and succeeding. It's actually about the opposite of that. Letting go. Not needing to win. Not needing to perform and not needing to succeed. So what John was trying to do was to create this sense where this pilgrimage journey, which all these that they had been about, the pilgrimage journeys were always about letting go. And and, the, and I added this simply because it's in there. Okay. A disabling of our ego. A rite of passage was always about a disabling of our ego in order to create a new So what happens is we as people end up living in this reality where we are welcomed into a pilgrimage path, a different type of pilgrimage path nonetheless. But that's what John was trying to create. John was not trying to just dunk people in sort of the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, get them back up, and now they're baptized and, and they're in. I do believe in that. But what John was doing was something much deeper. He was recreating the, the Exodus journey where they would come into Israel that knew the waters and allow the stream to be replenished in their life. And so John the Baptist invited people into this. This is the role of the prophet and is central to the history of Advent. Because what John was actually saying, if you remember the text we read this morning, he was saying that the kingdom of God, well, he starts with repent. And notice what it says. This one, I'll read it. It's opened up. John the Baptist said unto them, change your hearts and your minds for the kingdom of heaven is here. But in order for you to embrace that it's already here, you're going to have to change what? says to them when they asked about the harlot, they said, she'll enter the kingdom of heaven before any of you will give yourselves to her. He didn't mention her giving up the red light district. He just said, she'll inherit first. So the idea is John saying this thing and inviting people on a pilgrimage. 
given that desire over to wash himself from these deeds of stain because the thing that will prevent you from recognizing that the kingdom of God is already here and around you is not a four-letter word that you throw when somebody pulls out in front of you in traffic. It's the illusion that you don't belong. And that's shame. It's the illusion that you have to do something to get something. The role of the prophet is central to the theme of Advent. You are bringing people to the awareness that there's something that's already here and still coming if they will live into that reality on an Adventist basis. That's why the Jordan wasn't easy to get to. Because the way out is always right. Down is always the way out. Down is easy to get to. He embodied the need to critique the powers that be, which attempted to restrict access to this kind of thing. Another piece of interesting scholarship indicates that the reason John was so hated by the Jewish leadership was because he was a man born within the system that actually chose to critique it. He was born on the inside and resided is the job of the prophetic people. John leads initiation by inviting people to wash in the wrong water. Not as a form of endorsement of the purification system, but rather as a critique of it. Because what John is trying to lead them to is the understanding that they don't need water that's been deemed by the priest holy because all water is holy. to remind them that they were ontologically holy just by existing you are holy it wasn't special holy water that needed to be drained in fact John showed them that the dirtiest sewage drain run off water was enough the beauty of this ritual and frankly one of the reasons I love the ceremonial baptism that we many of us have experienced is that John is allowing them and telling them to walk through the water as a subversive act of liberation. This is much deeper and connects us to the whole thing that God is doing. Rather than the sterile and hyper-individualistic ritual that focuses completely on our desires for individual purity. So most of us were taught that the reason you get baptized is it's a, it's a display on the outside of what happened on the inside, that it's all about I was dirty and now I'm clean, and this is, it's all individualistic, isn't it? But the difference is the way that John led this was everybody would go through the same pilgrimage, rite of passage thing, find their way through the same desert, and then walk their way through the Jordan. John was right with them, but that's not what the Holy Spirit told them. And as Jesus walked alongside John through the Jordan, the heavens opened, the dove, the Holy 
Holy Spirit descended and God said what? This is my beloved son. Why? Because the son showing, not because Jesus had to sin that he needed punished. Wasn't that always something weird? What did Jesus have to be punished for if that person was still a remission of sins? It's not the point. Too far of an explanation? No. It's showing us that the same, that we don't do the same purification, or that, excuse me, the same uh, pilgrimage that we do where we need to recognize that the why God didn't open the heavens and say, this is my son who has now been made clean. Saints, he didn't speak to Jesus doing that. Because he was the Lamb The ritual of baptism has changed. I'm going to close with this and we'll wrap up. Hopefully next week too. The ritual of baptism has changed a lot. And uh, from the Judeo-Christian story of mikvahs where they would have individual pools or, or little jars and basins um, to in the apostolic era, so that would be like the book of Acts, where they would um, submerge people in water. Now there's lots of uh, uh, thoughts about why that changed because we do that now, right? Most of us, well, some uh, faiths that don't believe that way um, for the most part. But the idea primarily has changed um, and there's actually some really cool scholarship I found the earliest church writings that we can find um, from around 8 to 900 that were written in section 5 in Baptist what you're supposed to do it's really funny because we don't do it that way anymore um, but uh, um, what's interesting is it, it more than likely it adapted around that apostolic time I would like to think there's a good possibility it had to because of the amount of violent oppression, they, these pilgrimage journeys were not something that they could incorporate into the faith where you would go out and walk through the woods <laughs> with the kids. So they would be able to have private ceremonies that kind of got baptized in a way that most of us would expect. That just became the norm in the first century church out of the church at that time. So I think that that is a what Now, I wish, I, it's not feasible, I wish we could go back to where we baptize people as infants, not in a trough. I really, really wish we did. I, I think there's something deeply powerful about that. I, I really do. It is a dying. I mean, somebody's holding you under the water for just long enough to feel helpless. And that's the way it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be a dying. And so I love that idea. That's how we arrived at that more than likely. It was an accommodation of what needed to happen. But this sense of God was doing something very unique and very different that was very culturally relevant. And isn't this just like Advent, that you have to go on the pilgrimage journey?
Holy Spirit is leading us to show you the hope that you have been perpetual in our Advent. We will see you do it this week. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.